0: Turn with me, please, to First John chapter two, and we will read in a moment. Hope you don't grow tired of me uh, saying this, but I appreciate so so much our communion services. Uh, of all the services that we conduct in this building, communion is so special. Such a good reminder. And I hope you come with that in mind. We've sung some glorious hymns this morning, speaking of Christ's redemptive work and so forth. Today, we commence a new communion series. No cheers? That's okay. For the past seven months, actually it's been longer, but for the past seven months, we have considered some incredible themes in our series, A Glossary of glorious terms, and they're there on the window. The last one's up the front here. The seven terms that we have looked at. In our culture, the name of a person is simply a designation. But in the Bible, names were selected for a specific purpose, different to today. Some names were given to commemorate a particular truth. Others were given to describe the character of the individual. Sometimes the Lord chose a name for a human being with the purpose of teaching his people some truth. Look particularly at Hosea's children, for example, or the name Methuselah. In other words, the title of a person was given with a definite purpose. Today, names are largely chosen because it's a name that the parents like. Or, for some sentimental reason, my grandfather or my great-grandfather had that name and so forth. The name Adam, for example, means earthy or red earth, speaking of his origin, having been formed from the dust of the earth. The name Eve means life-giving. Referring to her role as the mother of all who are living. The name Isaac in the Bible means laughter and was given to him because God had brought great joy and happiness to the 90-year-old Sarah when she gave birth to Isaac, the promised son. Our new series is called A Glossary of Glorious Titles. And we will be looking at some of the designations given to to the Lord Jesus Christ in the scriptures. We will define each title. We'll look for the theological ramifications of each title. And then we will make some practical applications for our everyday life. A glossary of glorious titles. We've looked at terms. Now we move to titles. And I thought I was excited about terms. But now I'm excited about Titles. It's a little bit like when someone asks me, what's your favourite book of the Bible? The answer seems to be whichever one I'm reading at the moment. Because the one that I used to love over there, I still love, but I'm reading this and this is just amazing. And so I would say this is an exciting series. Before we look at the first title today, I want this to be very clear for us this morning, church. This is the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. When it comes to the names of Christ in scripture there are nearly 300 unique descriptive titles of Christ in the Bible and I'm sure you're glad I'm not trying to cover all 300 this morning but I had the incredibly difficult task this week of deciding which of the sum 200 And 66 titles I should start with. And for the benefit of those who read my sermon notes, if you get a copy of them, I have listed all 266 titles of Christ found in the scriptures so you can study these at home. Each of these titles, as I went through them, and it was no wonder it took me a long time on Friday to put this all together... I've put them into three separate categories for you. So if you get a copy of the notes, you'll understand this. three separate categories. The first category that I put them in are the titles that refer to Christ's deity. Christ is God. And there's titles that relate to that. In fact, 147 of them. Now, I have to say before I go any further as well. Some of these titles could be in all three categories. So I have categorised them. It doesn't mean that it's perfect and right in every sense. But I believe that there is 147 titles in scripture that relate to Christ being God. The second category is titles referring to Christ's humanity, of which I have categorised 64 of them. And then the third category is titles referring to Christ's work of salvation. And there are 55 of those. So his deity, Christ is God. His humanity, Christ is a man. And then his salvation that he provided for us contained in a title of which there are 55. May I say this to us too. Let me encourage you. If you don't have a regular Bible study now in your life, take one of these each day for 266 days and just meditate on it. Think about what it means and what it means for me living each day. So here they are. Strap in because I'm about to read 266 titles to you. For the sake of the fact that I think if nothing else you will come away and go, wow. That's okay if you get nothing else. So titles referring to the pre-incarnate Christ, his deity or his character. Alphabetically, don't try and write these down, it'll go too quick. (laughs) Almighty, Alpha and Omega, the Amen. The ancient of days, the altogether lovely one, the angel of his presence, apple tree, beginning and ending, bishop of souls, bright and morning star, the buckler, the bundle of myrrh, the captain of the Lord's host, the chief cornerstone, the chief shepherd, the chiefest among 10,000, the cluster of campfire, Counselor, covenant of the people, creator of Israel, the day star, the daysman, the day spring, the desire of all nations, the dew, D E W. Emmanuel, everlasting father, express image of his person, the faithful and the true, the first begotten of the dead, the first and the last, the firstborn of every creature, the firstborn, the firstborn from the dead. The first fruits, the forerunner, the fortress, the foundation, God of the whole earth, governor of nations, governor, great guide, head of the body, the church, head of the church, head of the corner, head of all principality and power, head of every man, the healer, the heir of all things, the helper. The hiding place, the high tower, higher than the heavens, the holy one, the holy one of Israel, the holy one of God, my hope. The I am, the Emmanuel, the immortal, the invisible, the judge of the quick, the just one, the king, the king of glory, the king of the Jews, the king of Israel, the king of saints, the king of kings, and the king eternal, the lawgiver, the leader and commander of the people, the life The lifter of my head, the lily of the valley, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the living stone, the Lord, Lord and Christ, Lord both of the living and the dead, Lord from heaven, Lord God almighty, Lord of the harvest, Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of hosts, Lord of lords, Lord of righteousness, love, master, master in heaven, mighty God. Minister of the circumcision, minister of the sanctuary, my beloved, my beloved son, my strong habitation, the nail, the name above every name. The only wise God, our Lord Jesus Christ, potentate, potter, power and wisdom of God, precious cornerstone, precious prince, prince of life, prince of peace, prince of the kings of the earth, purifier of silver. Refiner, resurrection, reward, my exceeding reward, rewarder, righteous, righteous branch, the rock, the rose of Sharon, shadow from heat, shepherd, shield, Shiloh, son of God, son of the highest, son of the blessed, son of the living God, the stone, the stone cut without stone cut without hands, the strength, the stronghold. The son of righteousness, the sure foundation, thy maker, thy seed, the tree of life, the tried stone, the true God and eternal life, the true vine, the true light, the truth, the vine, the voice, the way, the way of holiness, wonderful, and your king. That's just category one. Category two, titles referring to Christ's humanity, a little bit smaller. The anointed, the apostle. Approved of God, the babe, the beginning of creation of God, the branch, the branch of righteousness, the carpenter, the son of Mary, the carpenter's son, the child, the chosen of God, Christ Jesus, my Lord, Christ of God, Christ the Lord, Christ, son of the living God, faithful and true witness, faithful witness, fruit of the womb, Galilean, good master, greater than Solomon, Holy child Jesus, image of invisible God, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jew, just man, lowly, man of sorrows, the manner, the messenger, mine elect, the Nazarene, the only begotten of the father, the prophet, the prophet of Nazareth, the rabbi, son of God, the righteous man, the righteous servant, the rock of offense, the root of David, the root of Jesse, the root out of dry ground, the Samaritan. The scepter of Israel, the seed of the woman, the servant, the son of David, the son of Joseph, the son of man, the star out of Jacob, stem of Jesse, stone of stumbling, stranger in Jerusalem, teacher from God, tender plant, testator, the child Jesus, the Christ, the man, the man Christ Jesus, the Lord's Christ, the word, thine husband, the young child. And the last Category Titles referring to Christ's work in salvation. The advocate, the author of salvation, the bread of life, the bridegroom, the captain of our salvation, the consolation of Israel, the covert from the tempest, uh, the deliverer. Uh, The door, the end of the law, the ensign of the people, the finisher of our faith, the fountain opened for sin, the fountain of living waters, the friend of publicans and sinners, the glory of thy people Israel, the good shepherd, the high priest the high priest over the house of God, the horn of my salvation, the horn of salvation, Jesus, Jesus the Lord, Jesus Christ our Saviour, the Justifier, the Lamb, the Lamb slain, the Lamb without blemish or spot, the Lamb of God, the last Adam, the light of men, the light to lighten the Gentiles, light for the Gentiles, light of the world, living bread, mediator, merciful, faithful high priest, the Messiah, the Messias. New and living way, the offering, a sacrifice of God, one shepherd, the one who brings good tidings, our peace, our overcomer, the Passover, priest, propitiation for our sins, the reconciler, the redeemer, our salvation, the savior, the savior of the world, the second man, the surety of a better testament. That is our Christ we could just close in prayer. I tell you, what, what an incredible list of names in Scripture, and I read them out just simply for the purpose that you would go, wow. So I go, wow, because it's a wow factor, isn't it, when we look at the Lord Jesus and who he is. And so for our time this morning, we are going to take one, just one of those titles, and the name... Or the title that we will look at today is The Advocate. The Advocate. A glossary of glorious titles, part one, Our Advocate. Lord, we are in awe of what the scripture teaches regarding who you are. We realise first and foremost that a name is not simply a designation, but it has a meaning and a purpose. And there are nearly 300 of these that relate to, directly to the Lord Jesus and each of them is different each of them shows us some aspect of his character and truly we are in awe Uh, oh that we would take the time to study each one out to to work out what is intended by the author uh, by the one who gave that title or name that we might apply that same truth in our own life and Lord for this particular study this glorious title, The Advocate. I pray you'd help me for these next few minutes together to uh, adequately and successfully share some of what is contained. I couldn't hope, couldn't dream of being able to say everything that is contained in this wonderful title. But Lord, if we would gain some things, Uh, Lord, even if it's the crumbs, even if it's just a little bit that you would have for us today, may it be rich and satisfying, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the Righteous. He is the propitiation, the satisfaction for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The very first point, the very first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at the context and the definition here. Our glorious title is advocate. And may I say it is glorious and I cannot do justice to it today, but I am going to try my hardest. Before we delve into the meaning of the word and the meaning of the title, let's get some context here, some biblical context. First of all, this is the Apostle John. John, who is the last surviving Apostle, somewhere about 90 AD. He himself is probably about 90 years of age. Everybody else has been martyred. All the original 12 or the original 11 have all gone, and he's the last one of the 12 left at this time. He's pastored a number of churches through Asia Minor and he has been such a blessing to so many. And even our historical fathers speak of, outside of scripture, speak of John's love and concern and pastoring heart towards the people. And this whole book, this epistle is written to those who he he has been teaching and pastoring and the point of it is to provide rebuttal to some of the new sects and um, uh, emergent teachings which have opposed true Christianity. So his point here, he's writing a whole bunch of things to oppose the false teaching that has crept in to the church. Some of those things include denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ, denying his deity, minimizing the fact that Christ came in human flesh, a teaching called docetism idolatry, antichrists, and habitual sin are just some of the topics found in this little book. But the first thing I want you to see under our context and definition in this verse, subpoint, if you like, is the patriarchal heart of a pastor. The patriarchal heart of a pastor. Look at verse 1. My little children. This aged apostle, experienced man, walked with the Lord personally for many years, refers to his recipients as little children. He doesn't mean this in some condescending way. That's not his point here at all. It's a reflection of his heart full of love and concern towards these recipients. And he uses this term, little children, on seven occasions in 1 John. He wants them to know that he cares about them. He wants them to know he loves them. A patriarchal heart of a pastor here. And, and I, I, see, uh, I see his heart here. I see the way that he wants to gather his people around him and say, My little children, come to me. I want to share with you some truth. And I feel that when I come to the pulpit, in particular myself, is that when we gather together, I feel in my heart a desire to expound the truth of God's word so that you would grow up. And that's his point here, too, that we would grow as Christians. The patriarchal heart of the pastor, my little children. And then look, secondly, at the purpose of John's writing here. In our text, he says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He provides a reason. He wants them to live in a manner that's holy, in a manner that is in accord with their profession of faith. He wants to provide instruction to help them keep away from sin. His desire is that they would live in a holy manner. And again, my own pastor's heart towards you as the people God has given me is the same, that we would teach and help so that you would not have to live constantly in this battle of sin and be overcome by it, but that we would be growing and changing and being transformed by the renewal of our mind. We see the purpose of John's writing. But then thirdly, under this first point, we see the importance of striving for sinlessness. He says here, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. The importance of striving for sinlessness. Now, it's at this point someone will normally come to me and say, are you one who believes in sinless perfection? Are you someone who says we can actually reach this... Um, It's impossible to reach sinless perfection in this life, someone would say to me. And to that I say, you're right. You're right. We cannot get to a point where we have reached sinless perfection in this life. However, we are striving for it. We may not reach it. We will not reach it until we are glorified. But John says here, strive for it. See, the problem is that most of us are not striving for it. We say, well, I can't reach that, so I'm not even going to bother trying. But that's not what we're called to do. We are called to strive for it with the knowledge that we won't attain it in this life. Most pastors and teachers of the word are afraid of instructing their people to live holy lives, lest they are labeled as a Puritan or a legalist or a Pharisee. However, Christian church, we must remember, we are called to live lives that are blameless. We are striving for perfection, knowing that we will not attain it until glory. 2 Timothy 2.19, Paul says to Timothy, But God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal. The Lord knows those that are his, and... Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. The call is to depart from iniquity. 1 Peter 1 verse 14 to 16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed, just like these celery sticks. Do not be conformed to your former passions and in your ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. The goal of sinless perfection will not be reached this side of eternity, but we must strive to attain it. Just because we cannot get there in this life does not mean we do not pursue excellence in our Christian lives. In fact, it's. I believe the Apostle Paul writing in Hebrews chapter 2, who says, cut away all the sin that clings so closely to us so that we can run this race with patience, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so the importance of striving for sinlessness. Fourthly, under our first point here, the provision made for when we sin. Look at our text, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That's my goal, he says. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Sadly, every Christian sins. All of us. It occurs in every life, but praise be to God, provision has been made for that sin. And this is where we begin to look at this incredible title, the word advocate. It's the Greek word parakletos, and it refers to one who pleads another's case before a judge. The counsel for defence the intercessor, one who comes alongside to the aid of another. If you take a Greek thesaurus and you look up this word, you will find this particular Greek word used here. It is used all the time in secular Greek writings, and it is in reference to one who is an advocate in the court. The Roman culture began what we see today as our current courtroom setup. That began back in Rome. And here we have this particular word used all the time, not so much in the scripture, but in secular Greek to denote an advocate in the court, the defense counsel, the one who stands defending the case of another. That's some of our context, that's some of our background and our definition. Let's look secondly, and most importantly, to the theological ramifications of this word advocate. Theological ramifications. This glorious title, advocate, conveys not only legal connotations, but also weighty theological ramifications. The first thing I want us to see here is our need for an advocate. If we're going to understand what this title means, what, it, what this concept, this term of advocate means, we need to understand why I even need one. Why do you and I require a spiritual advocate? Because of sin. That three-letter word that the world doesn't want to talk about, that so many churches don't want to talk about, we are sinners, not because we sin, but because we were born sinners. By nature, we are sinners, not just because of what we've done, we were born that way. We are descendants of Adam, and therefore sin has passed upon every single human being, boy, girl, man, woman, all of us, born in iniquity, shaped that way from our mother's womb. If you human genes, uh, if you have genes that are human and you do, you're not from an ape or a monkey. If you have human genes, then you are a sinner by birth. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2. Uh, Isaiah says to the people of his day, The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities, your sin has separated between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you. Proverbs 15 verse 9 says the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. The author of Psalm 7 says God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every single day. You say, why is this so important that we understand this? Well, it's important because it is impossible, church, for God to overlook sin. He cannot do that. You say, are there some things that God cannot do? Yes, there are. And one of them is he cannot overlook sin. He cannot simply say, I didn't see that sin. I will not let that sin be a problem in our relationship. He cannot overlook sin. People who suggest that God will one day demonstrate mercy to all of those uh, at the time of judgment don't know the character of God at all. Not at all. Mercy is for now, not then. Jesus offers salvation now, but then He is the judge. Now is the appointed day of salvation, Paul says. It will be too late when Jesus returns. Here's a thought for us. The offer of salvation will never be recalled. But it will be fulfilled. And then the door of opportunity will be eternally closed. Salvation will never be recalled from one who has it. Never. But it will be ultimately fulfilled one day, and at that time, salvation and the opportunity will be over for those outside of Christ. The Lord left the door of the ark open for a time so that some would come in, and they did not. And then God closed the door. The same is true with salvation. You see, we are the guilty party But instead of bearing the repercussions for our offenses, the Lord Jesus Christ bears the full weight, the penalty and the wrath of his father for sin, our sin. In fact, that's exactly what verse two says. He is the propitiation. I'm so glad that word is in the Bible because it makes people say, what does propitiation even mean? Jesus is the satisfaction He's the only one that could satisfy the wrath of God that was poured out upon me. He took it upon himself. He bore the full weight. Only the righteous son of God could meet the holy standards of the father. Which is why Jesus Christ is the only means of salvation. The Pope cannot save you. The pastor cannot save you. No preacher can save you. Only that individual whose merit meets the criteria of the Holy God is able to rescue us from sin. We must remember that reality. Why do we need an advocate? Because we cannot do it ourselves. And then, secondly, not just the need for an advocate, but the role of an advocate. So an advocate is one who pleads our case. Take note of this thought. What Christ pleads for us in heaven is the ongoing effects of his own death. We say that again. What Christ pleads for us in heaven is the ongoing effects of his own death what it accomplished is what he pleads on our behalf because here's the problem the devil the flesh our own sin bring us to despair over our sin but the pleading of our righteous advocate declares us not guilty question that i asked myself in the office Is why is it important that our advocate is righteous? Here it says in our text, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Why must our advocate be righteous? Here is why. Unlike the court of law today, and even in the Roman time, he is not pleading our case upon our merits. He's not pleading our case upon our innocence. Today, we have uh, these uh, lawyers who stand up and they say, my client is innocent because of this, 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 this. And they list off their reasons. But in our case, it's amazing. The Lord Jesus stands and he says, I am pleading their innocence, not because they are, but because I am. Unusual circumstance. So why must he be righteous? Because he's not pleading our merit and our righteousness, but his own, which has been imputed to us. In fact, Matthew Henry writes, and I love this when I read this, the clients are guilty. Their innocence and legal righteousness cannot be pleaded. It is the advocate's own righteousness that he must plead for the criminals. I am by no means a very good narrative writer. I'm by no means a very good writer at all. But I, as I was thinking about this courtroom, as I was thinking about this advocate and the picture that is contained within this Greek term, I wrote myself a little uh, illustration. Maybe it's helpful for us. The court of heaven is in session. The Honourable Judge Jehovah (coughs) presides. The prosecutor is Satan, who like a roaring lion is seeking to devour me. Next to me sits my lawyer, the defender of my case, the Lord Jesus Christ. The matter in question is my sin from yesterday. The prosecutor stands and begins to relay to the judge all that I did wrong yesterday. This man, he says, pointing to me, was caught with a lustful thought. He lied to his wife. He operated with anxiety at work. And he did his morning devotions ritualistically. So says the prosecutor. Pointing to the judge, Satan says, Your law states that the soul that sins shall die. And I'm calling you to justice and the execution of this criminal. As he points to me, the judge of all the earth looks at me and says, the charges have been laid out. How do you plead? Before a word is on my tongue in the court of heaven, my defense lawyer stands and seeks to approach the judge's bar of perfection. Despite Satan's strong objections, the judge motions to my advocate Jesus Christ to approach. The two have some discussion, but I can't hear what is being said. Just across the way sits my prosecutor who taunts me and hurls insults at me. Moments later, Jesus returns to my side. The judge Jehovah lifts his gavel and says, I declare this man innocent on the basis of my son's righteousness, which has been given to him. You are free to go. The penalty has already been paid. This case is dismissed. The gavel is slammed down and the court session is finished. As my advocate leads me away, I hear Satan ranting and raving, I won't give up, I'll win the next time. I turn and ask Jesus, have you ever lost a case? He lovingly smiles and says to me, everyone that has come to me and asked me to represent them has received the same verdict as you, paid in full, not guilty. That's our advocate. That's our advocate. God's bar of perfection can only be approached by the Son of God. Nobody else can come. Satan cannot come. I cannot come. Only Jesus comes and he says, I've bought him with my precious blood. He's mine. I am his defense. The righteousness that is his came from me and my sin was given to him. I took his place. You are forevermore not guilty. It's done. It's gone. And that is why, church, we must run. We must run to Christ for rescue and forgiveness. This is not another conversion experience, but an appeal for cleansing from the advocate who has already washed us in his precious blood. See, the great problem with transubstantiation, which is a teaching in the Roman Catholic Church, is the idea that when we come together and we take part in these emblems here this morning, that they somehow mystically transfer into the real body and blood of Jesus Christ. If that were so, then us missing one communion or the mass, as they say, our sins would not be atoned for. Our sins. And if you've done some things wrong between that, uh, that week and that next Sunday when you come together to drink again, you are gone. Because your advocacy only lasts as long as you drink and eat. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says, once for all, not guilty ever again, the cleansing that we require is a practical cleansing in our life, not a spiritual cleansing. We are cleansed. We have been cleansed. We are cleansed and we will be forever cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, our advocate. Though Satan seeks to condemn us again, we must remember Romans 8, verse 1 to 4. Let me read it to you. Listen so carefully. There is therefore now, No condemnation for those who are in Christ. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Hallelujah. We have a righteous advocate. But that's not the end just yet. Soon. Then we have to look at, thirdly, as our sub point, the future. The future. Before we move to the very last point, the main point, I want to refer you to a glorious text. And for the sake of time, we won't turn there, but let me read it to you. And this speaks of our future advocacy. Our past is taken care of. Our present is taken care of in the courtroom of heaven every single day. It's taken care of. But what about the future? Well, at the end of the book of Jude, by the way, Jesus's half brother writes this in verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling, present tense. He's able to keep you from stumbling now. It's possible in this life to live as you ought to before him. He will keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless, faultless. The King James says before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, be majesty, be dominion, be authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. The future advocacy is there. One day we will stand before him in that judgment seat day. And though our lives will be before him, one thing that will never happen is that Jesus Christ will not say, I never knew you. Because you have an advocate. And the advocate stands there. Interestingly enough, the judge on that day is also our advocate. And so when he looks at you, in essence, he looks at himself in one sense because he says, there is my righteousness in that individual. And he will keep us from stumbling now and present us faultless in the future. You say, so what's the point of all of this? Well, the last point, the last point where the rubber hits the road is simply this, the practical ramifications. So theological ramifications, they form the foundation, but we've got to live this life too as a Christian. It's not enough just to know these truths, we've got to live them. So now in our last point, why does it matter that we have a righteous advocate? What difference does it make in my daily life? If we were to turn to Revelation 12, we won't. But if we were to turn to Revelation 12 and verse 10, we would find that the prosecutor that I have illustrated over here as Satan has a title as well. And his title is the accuser of the brethren. And the Bible tells us that day and night he accuses God's saints before God. Have a think about that for a moment. Day and night, the devil brings our faults before God. Just like my little illustration did that before. And he says, these people are guilty. And the Lord Jesus stands and says, not guilty. He seeks... To fill our minds, the devil that is, with thoughts of unworthiness, of guilt, of ashamedness, of despair. And because he has no more eternal power over us, he seeks to inhibit and impede our walk with God now. By hurling accusations, by hurling allegations against us. And so understanding the truth that Jesus Christ is our advocate before the Father is essential to our daily life and here is some ways that we can understand that one thing that is critical when I have opportunity to counsel people Christian people is the importance of discerning our guilt every single one of us deals with guilt and guilt is good if it comes from the spirit of God guilt is wrong If it comes from the devil, let me explain the difference. The guilt that comes from the spirit of God within us, the conviction that occurs within us when we sin and it drives us to a place of repentance. That is a good thing. David said, you are heavy upon me day and night. He says after he had sinned in many, many ways. And for a year after his sin with Bathsheba, he was wrestling and God was heavy upon him. That's a good guilt. Because it was driving him to a place where he says, God against you and you only have I sinned. That's a good guilt. So we say, if that guilt drives me to a place of confession and drives me to a place of uh, repentance, that's a good thing. But there is a guilt that does not come from God. And that guilt is anything post confession. Here's what I mean. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If I truly have confessed, if I say, Lord, I know I've sinned here, I know this is wrong, I've broken your law, please cleanse and forgive me like you promise you will, I am able to claim that promise with absolute sincerity and truth. At that moment, the guilt dissipates because it is extinguished in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. However, if post-confession, I begin to feel that guilt again and more. Well, I don't know if God really did forgive me. I don't know if God really can forgive me. That sin was just too big. That sin was greater than, than I think God's forgiveness can provide. That is not from God. That guilt is a lie of the devil. That guilt is a lie that comes from hell. And if guilt remains after genuine confession of that sin, it is not of God that's why understanding our advocate is essential one of Satan's puncturing darts is post-confessional guilt he loves to hurl these poisonous projectiles and if we are not on guard as we ought to be we will be victims of his deception So what does that mean for my daily life? It means that when guilt comes in, when it's a reality in my life, I need to discern. Is this a guilt that drives me to confession and repentance? Then praise God. Thank you, Lord, for for the conviction and the guilt that you've placed upon me. But if it continues after that, if it continues more than that, and the promise has already been claimed, then there is something wrong here. And Satan loves Satan loves to bring hindrances into the life of God's people. That's why we can say with certainty, I have an advocate. He's defending my case in the courtroom of heaven at this very moment. His blood has covered it all. It's not just for the sins of the past, but also the present and the future. We could say so many more things, but... I want to close this time before we take these emblems and remember our advocate, remember what he has done for us and who he is. I want to close this time by reading a poem that I found. And I need to uh, preface my reading of this poem by saying that uh, you'll see it in the notes if you get a copy. Some of it I have taken out of the poem because some of it I didn't think was right. And a couple of words I've changed, so this person isn't probably going to be very happy with me. But I want to read most of what was here was good and a couple of the extras that I've put in. The author says this. In judgment I stood, condemned to die, devoid of defences, having no alibi. My pardon denied, nothing left to appeal. The sentence was passed, signed, stamped and sealed. I stood alone, my head hung in shame, with nothing to argue and no one to blame. The crimes I'd committed, my errors, my blights, could not be omitted even by things I'd done right. The judge looked over, and to my surprise, the warmest compassion danced in his eyes. I turned to see what salvation had come and came face to face with the judge's own son. The judge looked with love at his son, then at me, and said, you should die, but my son set you free. No condemnation remains, so go, you are free. My son's sacrifice has given you liberty. That is our advocate. We are undeserving. We are guilty. But in Christ, we are positionally Perfect, and he stands before the Father pleading our case, our wonderful advocate.